0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you
1: can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's
0: why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm your host, Preet Bharara.
1: I am under real serious grave threat of murder, kidnapping, arrest, imprisonment by the Russians. Vladimir Putin, in no uncertain terms, wants to destroy me.
0: That's my guest on the show today, Bill Browder. You might have heard his name a bunch this week, he's been in the news quite a bit. Bill is a British hedge fund manager and vocal critic of Vladimir Putin. Some might say his number one critic. At one point, When he was the largest foreign private investor in Russia, Browder and his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, remember that name, discovered Russian government corruption and fraud to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. The story that follows is one of the most harrowing that I've ever heard. It's a story of corruption, but also unbelievable courage. You're gonna wanna hear the whole thing. We're gonna let the story run a little long in this episode because I think every word counts. By the way, the other reason you might've heard the name Magnitsky, is because it came up in that infamous meeting at Trump Tower between Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, and a Russian lawyer by the name of Natalia Veselnitskaya. So we're going to get to that story, but before we do that, let's get to your questions. So this first question from Twitter is about prosecuting sexual assault. It comes from Deepak Hadpawat, and he asks, is there any way to prosecute people who conspired to help a sexual predator? Aides who led women into Weinstein's hotel room, etc., so that's a great question. You know, in my time as United States attorney, we didn't, as federal prosecutors, really have the jurisdiction to do sexual assault. We did a lot of prosecutions in connection with crimes against children and internet crime that involved you know, sexual predatory conduct, but not the kind of thing that you're talking about. But with respect to your question on, on whether other people who conspired to help a sexual predator could be charged, yeah, in theory, that is possible. Because to conspire with someone simply means to form an agreement in your mind, because a conspiracy is simply a a meeting of the minds between and among one or more people to do a a particular thing. And in the the example you're talking about, engage in sexual assault, that's hard to prove because you need to have evidence. The other people aside from the the predator himself knew that the conduct was going to take place. And usually that happens when you have a witness who testifies against someone else who flips in the parlance that we use or you have a recording. There's also a statute in most jurisdictions, if not all jurisdictions, called aiding and abetting. If you help someone to commit a crime like murder or robbery or rape, then you can be guilty of that crime too. In a lot of jurisdictions, your penalty is just as severe as it would have been had you been the principal bad actor. So good question, difficult to know if it will happen. And if it can, and it's right to do, I hope it gets done. I'll say one more thing. The Harvey Weinstein story has been sort of a watershed in the way that I have not seen as a prosecutor and as a citizen in a long time. And just I think in the last few days, there's more stories that seem credible. I've not examined the witnesses or looked at the evidence, but when you have 30 women saying what they're saying about James Toback, who's a lesser well-known director in Hollywood, then you know that maybe the dam is broken in some way. And the more people who come forward, not just women, but also men, and not just prosecutors, but also members of the public, and help other people solve the issue and hold people accountable, That's all good for the country. Uh, The next question also from Twitter comes from at almost underscore Jane. And the question is, shouldn't U.S. attorney candidates be refusing to meet with Trump on ethical grounds like you did? So the context of this question comes from what Jeff Sessions talked about in a hearing last week where he confirmed that Donald Trump has personally been interviewing some candidates for U.S. attorney spots. And I talked about this a little bit on last week's podcast, pointing out how peculiar and you know perhaps inappropriate it is for the president of the United States even though he has authority to appoint US attorneys to be personally interviewing particular US attorney candidates namely those in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Washington DC, perhaps Florida which happen to be shockingly the very places in which Donald Trump has business interests or property making it likely that he's trying to forge some kind of a relationship personally with the very people who would be in a position as independent prosecutors to investigate him or his associates. Now, I don't lay any blame, actually, at the feet of the people who were going to meet with the president. But what I do hope is that anybody who becomes the United States attorney after having met with Donald Trump tells the public in connection with confirmation what was discussed at the meeting, assures the public that there was no pledge of loyalty that was requested, assures the public that they will remain independent and have loyalty only to the Constitution and the public. And also, I think it would be wise, would promise the public that if and when, as a sitting United States attorney, they got a call, a personal call from the President of the United States, they would either not take it or make clear that they would be a witness to the phone call and, and tell the public that such a call took place. Because there is no substitute for not just independence on the part of United States attorneys, but also the perception of independence. And given what we've seen so far, with Donald Trump telling Jim Comey to knock it off on Michael Flynn or telling, suggesting to Jeff Sessions to knock it off on Joe Arpaio and those strange phone calls to me, one cannot be too careful about a personal relationship between the president of the United States with swirling investigations about a lot of things and sitting United States attorneys. This next question, also from Twitter, comes from huh, at loudnmom11. That's an interesting Twitter handle. And the question is Can you please interview Bill Browder in your podcast, Thanks America? It's very hard to say no to someone named Loud Mom 11. Ask and ye shall receive. You know, we were scheduled to have Bill on the show later in the season when he was going to be in the United States. But then with a swirl of activity and controversy over his listing on Interpol and being unable to make his way into the United States because his visa had been rejected. Because, as you will hear, Vladimir Putin and Russian government officials have him on a red notice with Interpol. We thought we'd speed it up, and we did a long and fascinating conversation with Bill Browder by phone while he's in London. I can't tell you how excited I have been to have Bill Browder on the show. The story he's going to tell, I guarantee you, you will find it as, as sensational as anything you've heard in a long time. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation— ...can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website... That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there So I'm thrilled to have on the show uh, Bill Browder. Bill, welcome to the show. Great
1: to be here.
0: Uh, Bill, you okay? I'm doing great. I'm doing good. <laughs> you had a kind of a nutty week. Uh,
1: well, yeah. I'm, uh, I am get all sorts of different types of validation, and this was definitely <laughs> a, a big validation week for me.
0: Yeah. You're talking to us right now from where? I'm, I'm in London at the moment
1: I'm in my office.
0: And you had some issues this week. You were in the news a lot. Um, I saw you all over the cable news networks because – you had a problem leaving London, right?
1: Yeah, so, so what happened was that um, uh, last week, uh, I had a big uh, success in, in, in a campaign that I've been running to uh, get the Magnitsky Act, which is which I'll describe more detail in a minute. It got passed in Canada. It's a, a sanctions act against um, Putin and Russia. And in retaliation to that, uh, Vladimir Putin issued an Interpol red notice for me to have me arrested wherever I go. As a consequence of that, I lost my U.S. visa and could not travel to America. And so there was, there's been a huge um, sort of scandal in Washington, a scandal in Lyon, where Interpol is located, um, as everybody is trying to make sense of, of why all these Western organizations and the U.S. government would be cooperating with Putin in a vindictive um, prosecution against me.
0: Um, because I'm calling him out for his corruption. Also, you know, in some irony, or maybe it makes complete sense, you have a best-selling book by the same name, Red Notice, right? Indeed. In, in fact, um,
1: so my book is called Red Notice. A Red, a red Notice is a, inter, is a description of an Interpol arrest warrant. And this last Red Notice was the fifth time that Russia um, has applied to try to get me arrested. The previous four times, Interpol has rejected their request to say... These, these, this request from Russia is politically motivated and illegitimate. Um, but Putin is a guy who doesn't give up, and uh, he didn't give up this time, and he, he went for it again. And, and um, at least in the very short term, he succeeded in getting this onto the system and, and uh, effectively getting me blocked from traveling to the United States.
0: Who do you blame in the United States for this uh, hiccup this week?
1: You know, I, I actually don't blame anybody because um, what, what had happened was that— um, got to blame States, somebody, uh, Bill. <laughs> I, I, I'll blame Vladimir Putin. Um, the, the United States justifiably um, uh, automatically cancels visas for people who are fugitives from justice. And they assume that, that when you're on the Interpol system, it must be legit. And my, my my big statement to everybody in Washington was, I don't blame anybody for what they've done, uh, but I will blame them a lot if they don't correct this quickly, because that will show some type of... of uh, Malfeasance, but but the whole thing was corrected very quickly. The whole th- the problem came to, to air on on uh, Sunday, and by Monday afternoon, my visa was fully functional. So I don't I don't blame anyone in America. However, I do blame Putin, and to a certain extent, I blame Interpol because, first of all, Putin is busy using Interpol for his own political vindictiveness, and strangely, Interpol is letting themselves get used. It's not like this is the first time.
0: Right. No. Well, this the you know, time. I've had a lot of experience with Interpol, obviously, in my in my from my prior job. Sometimes they do a great job, and they don't always do a perfect job. I want to get to a lot of the story and how we got to this point. But for the listeners who don't have a sense of your history and haven't read your book yet, tell our folks about who your grandfather was. So, um, yeah, I
1: come from a a very unusual American family. My grandfather was a, a labor union organizer from Wichita, Kansas in the 1920s. And he was so good at organizing the labor union that one day he was spotted by the communists. And they said, hey, if you like labor unionism, you're gonna love communism. Why don't you come to Russia and check it out? And so my grandfather moved to Moscow at the, uh, in, in 1927, and he does what, what a lot of young American men do when they get to Moscow. He met a Russian girl uh, who became my grandmother. And then he came back to America in 1932, five years later, and he became the uh, general secretary of the American Communist Party. Does that mean
0: he was like the head communist?
1: Yeah, he was the head of the, head of the American Communist Party. He ran for president on the
0: communist ticket in 1936 and
1: 1940 against Roosevelt.
0: So then you became a diehard communist yourself following your grandfather's footsteps?
1: Well, so I had a slightly different reaction. So uh, I, was, um, I was born in 1964. Um, I'm now 53 years old. Uh, but when I was going through my teenage rebellion um, in the 1970s, I was trying to figure out a good way to rebel from this family of communists. And, and uh, <laughs> And so I tried out a couple things that didn't work. I, I, I um, grew my hair long, and, and if you could see me, you'd see that my hair would, uh, doesn't grow long. It grew into an afro. Strangely, that didn't upset my family at all. But then I came across the perfect rebellion technique, which was to put a suit and tie on and become a capitalist. And there was nothing... That That's was an interesting type head. of rebellion. <laughs> and I graduated uh, Stanford Business School in 1989, which was a very auspicious year, because that was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. right, and, um, and so I was trying to figure out what to do with myself after business school, and I one day had this epiphany, which is if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America, I'm gonna to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe, and, that, and that's what I set out to do. And did you, did you succeed? Amazingly, I did. I, um, I, I, I first moved to London, then I eventually moved to Moscow, and I set up a, a, an investment company to invest in the um, shares of the newly privatized companies of Eastern Europe, and what was going on in, in after Russia left the Soviet Union was that there was a president at the time named Yeltsin. Yeltsin wanted to go from communism to capitalism as well. And so he said, let's just give all the state property away for free to the people, and that will make them capitalists. And so he did that. It didn't work out very well. Um, uh, at 22 oligarchs ended up owning 40% of the country, but there were little crumbs falling off the table. And those crumbs uh, created the opportunity for me to set up a business to invest in the shares of these Russian companies. How well did you do? How much money did you make? Uh, I started out managing uh, $25 million at the very beginning for a famous American Lebanese banker named Edmund Safra. And eventually, at the top of the market, I was managing $4.5 billion, which made me the largest foreign investor in Russia. And so I'd effectively succeeded in my goal of becoming the biggest capitalist based on one measure um, in in that part of the world.
0: That's a lot more money than you would have made if you maintained the white Afro, I think. So, so now let's fast forward to the early 2000s. You're successful in the way you've described. And then your investment firm called Hermitage, right? Yep. Starts to make some enemies of important and influential and powerful people in Russia. What happened there?
1: Well, so so I, I become this huge investor. I've got this big, big investment fund. And I noticed that I'm in the companies I'm invested in, and these are big companies that many people have heard of called Gasprom, the national gas company, Luke Oil, the electricity company, SpareBank. And a lot of these companies... Um, they were, they, you didn't really own a share of anything because the management of these companies or the majority shareholders were stealing billions of dollars out the back door. And it was very frustrating because you could you could kind of see where the value was, but, but, but you could also see that there was just monumental stealing, stealing on a proportion that, that you can't even imagine anywhere else in the world. And, and I was watching this and I was saying to myself, you know, this is just wrong and this is not profitable and it's just morally abhorrent and I'm going to try to stop it. And so what I did was we started to do deep research into how they did the stealing. And then we would take the research and we would share it with the newspapers, with the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, et cetera. And and this, what I call naming and shaming campaigns,
0: strangely worked. How how were they doing the stealing?
1: A lot of different things they were doing. They were doing um, asset stripping, where they would take assets, huge oil fields, and move them into the balance sheet of other companies. There was transfer pricing where they would basically they would sell oil at $1 a barrel to their, their private company, and then that company would sell oil at $50 a barrel to the market. They were doing share dilutions where they would sell shares for nothing to their friends for free. And then there was this outright embezzlement. And they were doing this stuff to a high art. It's hard to even imagine... You know disc- discussing it sort of you know in a cursory way here, but th- these guys were such experts at stealing you couldn 't imagine, and it was just so brazen how were you able to figure all
0: this out if it was um, if they were so clever and smart
1: well so so they were clever, smart, brazen, and interestingly, everyone thinks that Russia is not a transparent place, but the, Russia is the most bureaucratic country in the world. Everything is registered everywhere. you go to the bathroom and you 're there like sign your name on the bathroom sheet and then they <laughs> And, 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 so, and, and then that bathroom sheet gets distributed in quadruplicate to four different ministries. And so there's information everywhere in Russia. And that information was basically for sale for five bucks at, a local, at like the local street market. You could buy, buy the Russian um, Securities Commission database to look, look at all share transactions for five bucks. You could basically, for 20 bucks, put together uh, the data to analyze who was doing the stealing and how much they were stealing and, and where it was going. And I was the guy doing it. And, then, and the journalists, of course, loved me because I was saving them, you know, three months worth of their own work you're by doing the work for that. them,
0: right. Can we back up, we back up one, just one step from uh, before? So at this point, you're pissing off a lot of people naturally. But before you started to do this research exposing corruption, you were quite friendly with the Putin government, were you not?
1: Yeah. So, 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 so Putin, um, so there was this guy Yeltsin before Putin. He had let the country get taken over by 22 oligarchs the rest of the country was living in, in destitute poverty. And so at the end of the Yeltsin era, which was total chaos, I and, and, I, and I think most other people were just longing for someone to restore order. And um, this guy Putin shows up and he's got this sort of face that's totally impenetrable. You don't really know what he's thinking or it's just and, and he comes in and he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to restore order. I'm going to get rid of these oligarchs, and life is going to improve. And and I was so longing for an improvement in life and, and a, a restoration of order and and all this criminality to stop that I um I was cheering for Vladimir Putin because you and, thought uh, he
0: was because you thought he wanted to drain the swamp, so to speak.
1: That, that that was his pitch, and he kind of little even and when he first came in, I think he wasn't as brazen as he is now, and he's kind of did a few things that that one could could objectively say, wow, this is kind of good, and, na- and the national interest. They were sort of normalizing things a little bit. He was going after some of the oligarchs, which I loved because these oligarchs were so disgusting and criminal. But then he, then he uh, did something which completely changed everything, which is that he goes after the biggest oligarch in the country. He arrests a man named Michael Hordakovsky, who is the owner of an oil company called Yukos. And he, takes him off, he arrests him off of his private jet in Siberia, takes him back to Moscow, and he puts him on trial in Moscow uh, for tax evasion. And, um, and, and when you're on trial in Moscow, uh, in the court, there, there's a 99.7% conviction rate, which means that, they, that there's no presumption of innocence. And so, so they stick you in a cage when you're on trial. And Putin allowed the television cameras to come into the, to the courtroom and film Michael Hordakovsky, the richest man in Russia, sitting in a cage. Now, imagine that you're the 17th richest oligarch in Russia. You're on your yacht, you're parked off the Hotel du Cap in Antibes, perhaps you've just finished up with your mistress in the bedroom and you go out to the, um, to the living room and you flick on CNN and there you see a guy far smarter, far more powerful, far better than you sitting in a cage. Well, what's your natural reaction gonna be? More vodka. <laughs> one by one by one, these guys went back to Putin and, and, they, and, and in the fall of 2004, they said, Vladimir, what do we have to do to not sit in that cage? And he said, very calmly, 50%. He made a deal. And, and he made a deal. And not 50% for the Russian government or the presidential administration of Russia, 50% for Vladimir Putin.
0: What's an oligarch?
1: An oligarch is 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 a guy um, worth 10 or $15 billion in Russia from stealing assets from the state.
0: And would they self-describe themselves as, as oligarchs?
1: Well, I think that they're all desperately trying to find new definitions of themselves. They're philanthropists now. They're... Um, you know, artists, musicians, I don't know, they, they, they're trying to find anything else other than being an oligarch, because being an oligarch puts them in the crosshairs of not only in Russia, but in the West, no, nobody likes Russian oligarchs anymore.
0: So let's go back to your annoying all these people who have a lot of power, but not as much power as Putin. Yeah. and And then things go south for you. Well, so basically, after Putin arrested the richest oligarch in Russia, the oligarchs
1: went from being his enemies to being his business partners. And I continued to go after all this corruption. And I was no longer going after, um, I was basically going after Vladimir Putin himself. He didn't like that. And um, in 2005, as I was flying back to Russia, I'd been living there for 10 years. I was the largest foreign investor in their country. Um, I was at Sheremetyevo 2 Airport, arriving in from a flight from London. I go into the VIP lounge. I sit down. I expect it to be a two-minute affair with getting my passport approved. I'm waiting there for an hour. And then in walks four heavily armed border guards. They come straight towards me. They grab me. They frog march me down to the basement of the airport. They put me in the detention center of the airport and lock the door. And I didn't know whether I was being arrested or deported. So I sat down there all, all night. Thinking, what's going to happen? And the next morning came, and I, the, the flight out to London—the next flight out to London was 11 a.m. And I thought, okay, 9:30 a.m. If they're, if they're deporting me, they'll they'll grab me and process me for the flight. And nobody came at 9:30, and 10 a.m. there was nobody there. And I'm starting to think maybe them being arrested. And 10:15, and I thought that, that, that there's no way. How are they going to get me to the flight in 15 minutes?
0: And, Were you handcuffed at this point, or
1: no? No, I, I was just sitting sitting in the in the in their in their detention center. 10.30, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is it. I'm being arrested. I'm going to Siberia. Like 10.40, I'm just in a state of raw panic. And at 10.47, uh, the, the, uh, a different group of four guards come into the cell, grab me again, and then frog march me towards an Aeroflot flight, stick me in the center seat, leave the plane, they close the door, and I breathe the biggest sigh of relief I've ever re- breathed in my life. I wasn't being arrested. I was being deported. The, the foreign ministry of Russia eventually sends a letter saying, you've been deported because you've been declared a threat to national security, <clears throat> never to be allowed into Russia again.
0: So when you were deported, what was going on with your firm?
1: Well, so, so I get deported and I say to myself, okay, you know, when the Russians turn on you, they don't tend to do so mildly. They, they, they do so with extreme prejudice. And just deporting me is not, a, not that serious a sanction. So I, I look around and I say, well, okay, what, what else could they do? Well, there's two things they could do. They could, they could seize all the assets and we had a hell of a lot of assets in Russia or they could arrest my people. So I evacuate my staff I take everybody and their families out of Russia, I bring them to London, and then I say to them, let's get our money out. And we quickly and quietly sold every last share we held in Russia and got our money out safe. How did they allow you to do that? A lot of people ask me that question and it seems odd. Then the answer is that that the Putin regime is extremely evil, but they're highly incompetent at exercising their evil because, because they don't get good people and the people they get aren't highly motivated and they're just not very efficient. And so these guys just didn't get to my stuff until later. They eventually tried. I'll tell you about it in a second. So we got our money out, got all the money out, got our people out. Everyone was safe. All money is safe. Clients are happy. Thank you very much. End of story of Russia. I started going on to invest in other parts of the world, and I thought that was the end of Russia.
0: Do you have any doubt in your mind that all this bad stuff that happened to you in your deportation was personally directed by Vladimir Putin?
1: I have no doubt in my mind.
0: And why do you say that? Well,
1: um I, I've learned a lot about Vladimir Putin um in the last
0: twelve years
1: since I was deported, and um he is a first rate criminal. We we haven't gotten to what they did next, but when you when you hear what they did next and you'll see Vladimir Putin's involvement, you'll understand right. that that he was like deeply entrenched in this whole thing.
0: So you then you then could have lived happily ever after?
1: Um, I intended to live happily ever after, and um, I planned to live happily ever after, but it didn't work out that way. So I was expelled in, in November of 2005, and I'm doing some new stuff. And in June of 2007, I get. I, and, and I should point out one thing I, had a, I kept an office in Moscow. I had prepaid my rent, and so I thought, let's just keep the office so maybe one day this thing blows over and that will be, and I can go back. So I kept a little office in Moscow. There was a secretary there. And in, on June 4th, 2007, I get a call from the secretary in Moscow he, in, in hysterics. She said, Bill, there's 25 police officers here raiding the office, and, and what should I do? And I said, I don't know. Let me call our lawyer in Moscow. So I got this lawyer, a guy named Jameson Firestone. So I call up uh, Jameson, and, and I say, Jameson, what, we, what, we've got some people raiding our office. What should, what should I do? And he, he sounded pretty harried. He said, I'm not sure. I don't know. I've got 25 more officers raiding my office here looking for your documents. And then the, the next thing we, we know... Using the documents seized by the police, the companies had been fraudulently re-registered out of our name into the name of a man who had been convicted of murder and let out of jail early by the police, presumably to put his name on these documents. I I was horrified. And and I was horrified not because I was going to lose any money because we didn't have any money in these companies, but I was horrified because if the police were working with murderers opening up criminal cases against me and raiding our offices, God knows what else they're going to do to me. And so I needed to, to stop this whole thing and find a way of fixing it. And so I looked around to try to find the smartest lawyer I could find in Russia. And I found i found him. It was a young man. He was 35 at the time. His name was Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei Magnitsky worked for an American law firm. And he was one of these guys who could do 10 things in the time it takes other people to do one. He was just a genius. And I said to Sergei, go out and figure out what's going on here, why they're doing it, and how we stop it. And so Sergey goes out, he does a big investigation, and he comes back and he says, I, I figured out what they've done, and, it, and it's shocking. And he said it, it, there were two things they were trying to do. The first thing was they wanted to steal all of your money, but you were smarter than them and you got your money out quicker and they didn't get anything. I thought, phew, thank God. He said, however, the second thing is truly the most cynical thing I've ever seen in Russia. And I've seen a lot of cynical things. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, when we were moving all of our money out of Russia, um, we sold everything. And we had a huge profit. We had a billion dollars profit. And we paid $230 million of capital gains tax to the Russian government. And what Sergei had discovered was that when these bad guys had stolen our companies, They went back to the tax authorities, and they said those taxes that were paid, the $230 million that you paid last year, was paid by mistake. And they said, we'd like to file an amended tax return and get a tax refund of $230 million. And so they applied for a $230 million tax refund. It was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia. They applied for it on the 23rd of December, 2007, and it was approved and paid out the next day—the largest tax refund in the history of Russia.
0: Merry Christmas! <laughs> and then, so, so then, so then, what did what did you did you direct your lawyer Sergei Magnitsky to do something about that?
1: So, so yeah, so so we we said to ourselves, okay, first of all, we said to ourselves, this couldn't be a, have a, been a sanctioned exercise. This must, you know, Putin. How would he have allowed? He's a nationalist, right? He's a guy, a patriot. He cares about his country. How would he have allowed his his own officials? steal money from their own country. This I, I, it's, very, it's very important. This wasn't my money they stole. This was the Russian government's money they stole. So Sergey and I were both thinking that Putin, he might have authorized them to steal our money, but he couldn't have authorized them to steal the government's money. And so we then decided that if we just bring this to the highest level of the Russian government, that the good guys will get the bad guys, and that will be the end of
0: the story. And so- why, why didn't you, I'm sorry, Bill, 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 quickly, a couple of things. My question is, you know, at this point, you've escaped Russia without having gone to Siberia. You've escaped with your life and you've escaped with your money. Um, why not just leave this alone at this point?
1: It's a good question. And, and the answer is that that um, they had opened up criminal cases against me and and my colleagues um, in Russia in retaliation for, for us investigating what was going on. And those criminal cases were real, that those criminal cases would, would lead to prosecutions and and Interpol arrest warrants and all sorts of other stuff. And it was clear that you can't just leave uh, a criminal prosecution open to get against you. And, and since these guys had done this, these prosecutions in order to um, perpetuate this fraud – it seemed like if I could uncover and expose the fraud, then, then all the prosecutions would be over and then I could live happily ever after, quietly enjoying my, my life going forward. And so it was very important to clear my name and clear the record. And so that was the purpose of, of um, exposing the fraud. So, so we exposed the fraud. So uh, we, we, we filed the criminal complaints. Sergei then um, uh, gives sworn testimony to the Russian State Investigative Committee, which is their version of the FBI. And and then we sat back, and we thought, let's wait for the good guys to get the bad guys. Um, It turns out that in Putin's Russia, there are no good guys. And instead of arresting the people who committed this vast financial fraud against the Russian government, the same officers who Sergei testified against came to his home at 8 in the morning on the 24th of November 2008, and they arrested him, and they put him in pretrial detention, where he was then tortured to get him to withdraw his testimony.
0: You know, were you surprised that justice wasn't being done in the proper way? I mean, you, you've described already how you were rejected from Russia, how you know people with power got done whatever they wanted to get done. Were you being a little naive? And was Sergei Magnitsky being a little naive when you thought the good guys were going to get the bad guys in that place? Yeah.
1: I mean, in retrospect, we were being completely, absolutely stupid um, that, that there was no such thing as good guys. but. Part of it was that we were sort of hopeful that it wasn't such a bad place. You know, we were kind of thinking, we thinking it was as we wished it to be, as opposed to how it really was. And um, but the part of it was also very logical. I mean, I mean, when I tell this story in different countries in the world, this couldn't have happened anywhere else. I mean, this couldn't have happened anywhere else where, where a quarter of a billion dollars would get stolen with like the full approval of the president of the country. Even in the most corrupt places, you know, people ask me a lot about China versus Russia. And China might have crooks there, but but if the, the government is there to work in the national interest, there may be people sort of abusing that. But Russia, the people in the government are there to steal for themselves. And that's the only purpose of government. And so the, 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 it may look naive in retrospect, but it, it was just such an extreme thing that nobody could have imagined that this would be some sanctioned at the highest level. but But, but it was.
0: So, Sergei Magnitsky goes into custody in Russia. Could you tell us what happened to him in prison?
1: So, so they, they, they put him in pretrial detention, and and uh, he he's then tortured to get him to withdraw his testimony against the police officers. They put him in in cells with fourteen inmates and in eight beds, and leave the lights, leave lights on twenty four hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly freezes to death. Uh, they put him in cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage bubbles up. They move him from cell to cell to cell. I think they moved him something like 28 times in his 358 days in detention. And the purpose of all this is to get him to withdraw his testimony against the corrupt police officers. And then they want to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million and he did so on my instruction. And, and they, figure, they, they figure here's a, here's a, a tax lawyer from an American law firm who wears a blue suit and a red tie and buys his Starbucks in the morning and sits in a cubicle. This guy will buckle in a week and and do whatever they want him to do. And they had no idea who they were dealing with, with Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei Magnitsky is one of the most principled people I've ever come across in my life. He's this man of absolute integrity. And for Sergei, um, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was more awful and more painful than the physical pain that they were inflicting on him, and he just refused to do that. And so they just upped the pressure, upped the torture, and things got worse and worse and worse. And about six months into this, Sergei started getting terrible pains in his stomach. He ended up losing 40 pounds, and he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation. And about, about a week before the operation, his jailers came to him again with this proposal to sign a false confession. Again, he refused. And then they abruptly moved him from the prison that had a medical facility to a new, uh, not, not a new, but a very old maximum security prison called Butyrka. It's considered to be one of the worst prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, at Butyrka, there were no, there was no medical facilities. And at Butyrka, Sergei's health completely broke down. He went into constant agonizing, ear piercing pain, and they refused him all medical treatment. He and his lawyers wrote desperate requests to every different branch of the criminal justice system, begging for medical attention. And every one of their requests was either ignored or denied. And eventually, Sergei's body could no longer tolerate this. And on the night of November sixteenth, two 2009, Sergei Magnitsky went into critical condition. On that night, the um, Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore. And so they... Um, moved him, put him in an ambulance and moved him to a different prison where they had a medical wing. But when he arrived at this different prison, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell, they chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him until he died.
0: Were you learning about the mistreatment and torture of Sergei Magnitsky in real time?
1: Uh, We were. So Sergei, the the way that we know what happened to him is that Sergei wrote it all down. Everybody has their own way of dealing with duress of being in prison, and, and Sergey's way was to write it all down. And Sergey wrote about 450 complaints about his mistreatment in prison during his 358 days in detention. Once a month or so, um, he would hand a big stack of complaints to his lawyer, and his lawyer would file them. And the Russian authorities would either ignore them or deny them. But we got copies of all those complaints. Some of them in real time, some of them afterwards. But it was a slow-motion torture to death what they did to Sergei Magnitsky, and it was absolutely horrifying and heartbreaking to watch while it was happening. And of course, the most horrifying and most heartbreaking thing when I got that telephone call on the morning of the seventeenth of November, two thousand nine.
0: Did you feel powerless? how How did you How did you feel when you're getting these reports over the course of almost a year?
1: I felt. Horrific. It was, I just couldn't, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't, I, I felt terrible, guilty, take, even taking a shower because because they wouldn't let Sergey take showers. I mean, it's all, all the things, uh, you know, I'd wake up on a, on a, 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 you know, sunny Saturday morning and the birds were chirping and I, I just, I, I, I felt terrible that, that the birds were chirping for me and he was sitting in some dank cell in some, in some dungeon in Moscow and it just was horrible.
0: Was there any point when you thought hearing all this uh, torture that was happening to your lawyer, was there any time that you thought, you know what, maybe it would be better if Sergei just signs a false confession?
1: Yeah. Through his lawyer, I encouraged him to. But this was a man of of just absolute sort of steel integrity, and he was just not going to do that. I'm hoping that one day when the Putin regime ends, they will build statues for Sergei Magnitsky all over Russia for the kind of person that that they should encourage and, and have in that country.
0: Well, that actually... Brings me to my next series of questions. There have been statues of a manor erected in the name of Sergei Magnitsky. First, in terms of uh, a law in the United States, another in Canada. Why don't you? Why don't you explain what what you did after Sergei Magnitsky died, so that he would not have died in vain?
1: Well, so I I got the news on the morning of the 17th of November, and it was the most heartbreaking thing that's ever happened in my life. And and when I finally got over the shock, I put aside everything else to find justice for Sergei Magnitsky. And at first, I thought I was going to try in Russia. We had this absolute granular, detailed record of who did what to him, where, how, when, and why. And from that record, I I figured that there must be some possibility of getting justice inside of Russia because it was such a high-profile murder but we got none, zero. Putin circled the wagons. He um, personally got involved in exonerating every single person who played a role. He gave promotions and state honors to some of the people most complicit. And in the most shocking miscarriage of justice, the Putin regime put Sergei on trial three years after they murdered him in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. They found him guilty. I was his co-defendant, and they found me guilty as well, sentenced me to nine years in absentia in a Russian prison. It became absolutely clear and obvious well before that trial that there was no possibility of justice inside of Russia. So I said, let's get justice outside of Russia. What I discovered was that this was a crime of money. This was not a crime of ideology or a crime of religion. It was a crime of money. It was a crime to to cover up the theft of $230 million dollars. And the people who stole that money um, don't keep it in Russia. They keep it in the West. They buy apartments in in London and villas in France, and and they have ski homes in Aspen. They just love to travel and spend their money and keep their money in the West. And so I came up with an idea, which was if we could ban their visas and freeze their assets, um, that may not be real justice, but it's a hell of a lot better than total impunity, which is what these people had been enjoying up to then. And so I took this story of Sergei Magnitsky, pretty much the same story I've just shared with you today, and I presented it to Senator Benjamin Cardin, a Democrat from Maryland, and Senator John McCain, Republican from Arizona. And I said, can we freeze the assets and ban the visas of the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky? And they said, yes, we can. And in October of 2010, um, these two senators introduced the Sergei Magnitsky Act into Congress. And the moment after they introduced it, a number of other victims came forward and they added about 65 words to the law to include all other gross human rights abusers in russia and then the whole thing went viral in washington and in november of 2012 it went for a vote and it passed the senate 92 to 4 it passed the house of representatives with 89 percent. and on december 14 2012 um, uh, president obama signed it into law the magnitsky act became a federal law in the united states there are now 44 people on the Magnitsky list who have had their assets frozen, their visas canceled, and most importantly, they're on the U.S. Treasury sanctions list, which means they can't open a bank account anywhere in the world. And let me tell you something, this absolutely, completely infuriated Vladimir Putin. He was so angry that in retaliation, Vladimir Putin banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. And that that sounds terrible. Let me explain to you how much more terrible it is than it sounds. The orphans that, Russians, that Russia was putting up for adoptions were not the healthy ones. They were the sick children, the ones that no one else wanted. And in spite of that, Americans came to Russia with open arms and open hearts and adopted these sick children and brought them back to America and nursed them back to health. And Vladimir Putin, by banning their adoptions, was basically sentencing these children to death. A lot of the orphanages don't have any resources, can't, can't take care of children with HIV, with Down syndrome. And these children die in orphanages.
0: Why, why retaliate in such a spiteful way that, that hurt his own people more? I don't, you know,
1: it's hard to follow.
0: Well, he, he, he couldn't find anything else
1: to retaliate on. If he, if he, if he tried to seize assets in, in, in Russia, America, American government would seize Russian assets in America. If he tried to block a military equipment, which was going out of Afghanistan, America would block Russian military equipment in Syria. So he found the one thing that we couldn't retaliate on, which was these orphans who had no voice. And, and 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 why was he so motivated by this? Because Putin, it turns out, we have learned since then, was a recipient of that $230 million. We've traced some of that money to a, to a man named Sergei Roldugin. Sergei Roldugin is a famous Russian cellist who's been um, exposed by the Panama Papers as having been worth $2 billion. And when everybody researched where did this cellist get $2 billion, they realized, that he was Putin's best childhood friend, he was the godfather of Putin's children, and he was Putin's nominee. So effectively, this guy getting money from the 230 that $230 million that Magnitsky exposed, effectively going to Vladimir Putin. And, what, and Vladimir Putin believes his money will eventually be frozen. And I should point out that Vladimir Putin is a very rich man. How rich? Um, that, 50, that 50-50 deal he did with the oligarchs has made him $200 billion. In my analysis, he's the richest man in the world. And so he thinks that his money is at risk of being frozen and seized. And so we genuinely, as many people had told us, had hit the Achilles heel of Vladimir Putin personally with this Magnitsky Act.
0: You mentioned that you went to Senator Ben Cardin, Democrat, and Senator John McCain, Republican. Why didn't you go to the White House?
1: Well, I I discovered something very frustrating for me, um, which was that at the time that I wanted to do this, uh, President Obama, wanted to do something called the reset with Russia. What that meant in practical terms was he basically wanted to allow Russia to do whatever they wanted to do as long as sort of general diplomatic relations improved. And so I was being blocked. The White House wanted nothing to do with this.
0: Who was blocking you?
1: President Obama, basically. Um, uh, he, he, he didn't want to do this. This particular... Um, story shows how the U.S. Constitution, uh, uh, the checks and balances make it possible to to do things that should be done. And so this is clearly a a situation where whatever the diplomatic uh, objectives were of of, of the administration, this was just something that this was a good piece of legislation. This was basically saying, should Russian tortures and murders be allowed to come into America? And 92
0: senators thought, no, they shouldn't. Do you think – I know you're not a foreign policy expert, but you seem to know a lot about American and Russian relations. Do you think the reset on the part of the Obama administration was an error? Oh, it's a complete error. So, so –
1: and, and it's an error – it's sort of um, an error of the pride of Obama. What happens in all these situations? You get a new president. They come in and they think, I'm such a successful guy. Look, I'm, I'm a president of the United States of America. I can do anything. I can convince Vladimir Putin to behave himself. We saw this with George Bush. George Bush goes in there and he looks into Putin's eyes and sees his soul. And then it didn't work out so well. He has one meeting that where he saw his soul. and The next 27 meetings didn't work out so well. And and, and then Obama comes in and says, I, can, uh, you know, I think I'm such a special guy. I can reset the relations with Russia. And it didn't work out for him.
0: If you think that the Obama administration's attempt at reset with Russia was an error and a mistake, what's your view of how our current president, Trump, Deals with Vladimir Putin in particular, and Russia in general.
1: Well, so, so th- 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 there, there's two things: how, how does Trump deal with Putin, and how does his administration deal with Putin? And so it, it, it's a very schizophrenic um, situation. On the on the Trump side, he's he's tweeting out and saying all sorts of nice things about Putin, and, and saying things that I find very upsetting and distasteful. But then you look at his Defense Secretary Mattis, um, his. Uh, CIA head, his, all these other people, they're like the biggest Russia hawks there are. And so in reality, nothing has changed on the Russia policy, even with all this tweeting and, and offensive praise of Putin. Sanctions haven't been lifted. NATO is still intact. And, and generally, Russia is grumbling and pissed off
0: with America right now. So There has been a lot of press about a particular meeting that relates to the Magnitsky Act and the retaliation by Vladimir Putin's Russia. About a meeting in Trump Tower with a lawyer that you may be familiar with, Natalia Veselnitskaya, who was – it has been said by one of Donald Trump's sons – was here to talk about adoption. What do you make of that and what do you know about that meeting?
1: I know a lot about that meeting. So first of all, who is Natalia Veselnitskaya? Natalia Veselnitskaya is a Russian lawyer who is working full time for a Russian family headed by a Russian oligarch named Pyotr Katsiev. He was one of the senior members of the Putin regime, and the U.S. Department of Justice, under your command at the time, discovered that some of the money of the $230 million that um, uh, Sergei Magnitsky exposed and was killed over found its way into Manhattan real estate. And so um, your your, um, good work at the Southern District, your people filed a federal forfeiture order over those properties and seized about $15 million dollars or actually froze $15 million. And then Natalia Veselnitskaya shows up as a lawyer to fight these money laundering charges against her Russian oligarch clients. Now, in the process, this lady began a major lobbying campaign against the Magnitsky Act, and she went out spending millions on high-priced lobbyists, lawyers, to try to get the Magnitsky Act repealed. And as part of that effort, Natalia Veselnitskaya, a Russian ex-spy or current spy, depending on how you look at it, named Rinat Metchin, and a bunch of other uh, cast, motley cast of characters show up to meet with um, Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, and Jared Kushner with one specific ask, which is to repeal the Magnitsky Act if Donald Trump becomes president. There's no question that that's what they were asking for. Everybody has... More or less confirmed it, and it's also been confirmed contemporaneously by notes from Paul Manafort and by a memo that she had created to make her talking points. They were there to, re- to repeal the Magnitsky Act. When they mention adoptions, the only thing that adoptions have to do with this is that adoptions were the Russian retaliation against the Magnitsky Act, and so to the extent that the uh, Magnitsky Act was lifted, then they would allow adoptions again. But that's meeting. The meeting was not about adoptions. I don't believe that anyone ever talked about adoptions for any minute in that meeting.
0: Do you think that if Donald Trump had his druthers, he would repeal the Magnitsky Act? Uh, I don't think that Donald Trump um, has the capacity to, because well, that would, no, so let's, 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 I'm gonna ask you that question second. The first question is, if Donald Trump had his druthers, would he repeal the Magnitsky Act?
1: You know, I, I don't know what's going on inside his head. It's, it's, it's also um, confusing, upsetting for me to hear him talking about Russia. I don't really know what, what he would do and why he would do it. But what I, what I do know, is that there's no, there's no chance that it will be repealed.
0: Because we have, we an have, act of we have a con- Congress,
1: right? It's, it's an act of Congress. It wasn't done by a president's signature. So in, in, real, in, in fact, if, if, if Obama had been more helpful to me and he had done it as an executive order, then I'd be in much worse shape than I am right now where I, he forced me to go to Congress. And by going to Congress now, and to get rid of the Magnitsky Act, you have to go to Congress. And, and there's not, not a snowball's chance in hell that, that, this, is, that this, this will ever be repealed under under Trump or anything else.
0: You, you make a good point. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, acts that they like on the part of a president that they prefer that are done by executive order are ephemeral. Um, do, you, do you fear for your life?
1: Um, I am under uh, real, serious, grave threat of murder, kidnapping, arrest, imprisonment by the Russians, and a variety of other things. Um, Vladimir Putin, uh, in no uncertain terms, wants to destroy me. And um, uh, it's clear, it's, it's unequivocal. Just last week, um, he was uh, uh, on a rant about me um, in front of a group of scholars and, and uh, journalists. Just today, he was meeting with the Cypriot um, president going on about me and trying to get the Cy- Cyprus government involved in his persecution of me. Um, I'm in serious risk of, of, of harm by the Russian government.
0: Do you do you hold Vladimir Putin personally responsible for the death of Sergei Magnitsky?
1: I do. Vladimir Putin is responsible for his death, and for the cover up, and for the shocking retaliation afterwards.
0: So you're accusing Vladimir Putin of murder of a particular human.
1: He he wasn't the one um, uh, with the rubber batons in the cell, but it's his responsibility. I, I hold him responsible. It's his command responsibility, and I can and I can say he's personally responsible for the obstruction of justice and the um, cover-up of a murder case after Sergei Magnitsky was killed.
0: Is Vladimir Putin a strong man or a weak man?
1: Uh, Vladimir Putin is a weak little man that has to take extreme positions in order to compensate for his weakness. He's not running a a big, powerful country. Russia's the size of Italy in terms of its economy. Um, It's stagnating. And Putin is, is he's, he's finding enemies anywhere he looks. He's looking over his shoulder constantly. He's scared of losing power. And every step that Russia takes internationally, where they start wars or domestically, where they repress repress their citizens, this is all a function of his weakness, not his strength. What gives you hope? For Russia, nothing gives me hope. The only thing that gives me hope is that eventually the West will wake up to what a menace he is. And when when they do wake up to what a menace he is, we can put in place a proper containment strategy so that we don't have these naive approaches towards Russia that we've made in the past, which has empowered Putin.
0: How do you think Putin comes to an end in Russia? Well, I think there's
1: three scenarios for what what could happen in Russia. The first scenario, which is the least likely, is what I call the Maidan scenario. Maidan is the name of the square in Ukraine where everybody rose up to overthrow their dictator. The probability of that happening is low, like I would say 10%, and the reason is that because Putin is so scared of that happening that he's doing everything possible to prevent it. He's created a a presidential guard of 500,000 people who are ready to, to fire on their own people if, if that's what's necessary. The second scenario is what I call the palace coup scenario. This is where as people around him say this, he's becoming too, too, too much of a liability, too costly for us. I put that at about 20%. Um, but again, Putin is looking out for traitors in his midst all the time. And so, and he's like even setting up through cutouts, fake coups to see who's receptive to that so he can marginalize imprison, or kill those people. And, and so that's 20%. And the third scenario is what I call the Mugabe scenario. Mugabe is the name of, name of the dictator of Zimbabwe, who's been around for as long as, as uh, or m- longer than Putin, I should say. He's been around for almost 30 years. And he's run Zimbabwe completely and absolutely into the ground, hyperinflation, complete destruction of the economy, total loss of liberties. And sadly, I would give the Mugabe, Russia the Mugabe scenario a 70% probability. So it's very hard for me to be optimistic about what's going to happen going forward.
0: So before we let you go, I just want to go back to that, to the thing you said when we were on break about um, how things all worked yeah. out for you well this week. So I want yeah, sure. So a so, um, uh, very important
1: development in, uh, in the last week is that Canada has followed the United States, Great Britain, and Estonia in unanimously passing and signing into law the Canadian Magnitsky Act. And Putin is so angry that he lashed out at me last week in a um, public setting. He added me to the Interpol list uh, last week the u s automatically banned my visa, and um, thankfully, uh, there was a, a huge outrage on Monday about my visa and um, and I had four four big big names in my corner fighting for me. Um, by the way, thank you for for weighing in on the visa. Uh, oh no, sure. Thing. Well, I think
0: you had John McCain in your corner. That was a bigger deal.
1: Yeah, um, no, I think it's good. good. Have you, Mike McFall, John McCain, and Ben Cardin? That that pretty much did <laughs> it. <laughs> I had the dream team. And within three hours, uh, my visa was restored. You
0: you have a you have a lot of people in your corner because of all the work that you've done, and I want to I want to thank you for it. And uh, when people ask the question, "What gives me hope?" Among other things, I point to you. So so thanks again. It's been a real, real treat and honor to have you on the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for everything you've done.
0: So now we come to the part of the show where I talk about something in the news that moved me this week. On a lighter note, today is the fifth anniversary of a really important date in American history. And the event occurred in a concert hall in Hartford, Connecticut, On October 25th, 2012, when I attended a Springsteen concert with my family. Now I had already understood that I was going to meet Springsteen backstage. It had been arranged through a friend, so I was very excited about that. But what I did not expect, and I have never quite recovered from, was what happened a a little ways through the concert when Bruce Springsteen began to sing Death to My Hometown from his then recently released album. And this is what happened. God, I love that. <laughs> I mean, I really love that. As you might imagine, if I'm ever feeling down, I play that clip. If I'm ever feeling up and I want to feel even better, I play that clip. So I'm sitting there with my family, and I brought one of my kids, who's a guitar player and actually likes Springsteen. So, and so in the middle of this concert, I get this shout-out, and I wasn't sure he actually said my name. I'm looking around. I said, I think, I think he said my name. My son says, Daddy, I think, I think he just called you out. And then I'm thinking to myself is there going to be a record of this anywhere because I would like to relive this moment? And later that evening, it turns out that there was a daily news reporter who was at the concert. He said, how did it feel? And I said, I sort of lost all feeling in my body uh, and became completely paralyzed because I wasn't expecting it. And then the other thing I said was, you know, it was really the first time in my son's life that he thought his father was cool. So the article gets written and it's very nice and it comes out the next day. And I was uh, hanging out in my home office, and I had gotten a copy of the article, and I show it to my son, and I ask him to read it, and I thought this was interesting. And he reads it, and then he comes downstairs, and he says to me, Daddy, you know, the article is really good. And remember, he's nine. He says, there's one thing that's actually not true in the article, and I said, what's that? And he says, I swear to God, he says, the one thing that's not right in the article is that's not the first time I thought you were cool. And I sort of, I had to call the cardiologist, because my heart was swelling, So there's lots of reasons why that moment was special to me. Once you've gotten a shout-out from The Boss at a concert in front of tens of thousands of people, just about the only thing that could top that is if The Boss was your guest on a podcast. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Bill Browder, and thank you for listening. If you've written a review on Apple Podcasts, thank you. If you haven't, now's a great time to do so. It really helps other people find the show. And my mom likes reading about them. Keep sending me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Thanks to Ricky Novetsky for her help this week. Our music is by Andrew Dost, who, this is a fun fact, is a member of the band Fun. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. We have new episodes coming to you every Thursday. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.